Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, we bring you our final show of 2022. And with this time for reflection, we'll listen back to one of my favorite City Lights interviews. Comedian Hari Kondabolu is a keen social observer as well as a great storyteller. Before his Atlanta show in November at Dad's Garage, we spoke at length about a wide range of topics, beginning with how he spent his time during the pandemic lockdown. It's hard to say that the pandemic was well-timed, but I will say during that period, me and my partner had a baby. Oh, Marshall Tov. Thank you. And, you know, it, it's it's a weird thing when you're surrounded by so much sadness and death, loss, and you're bringing, you know, life into that. It is a very strange uh, feeling. And, you know, we got so much love from people, which I think generally happens when you have a child. But I felt even more so just because there was so much sadness and bad news every single day. And we were you know, I say we were pregnant, but she was pregnant. Uh, I was there uh, during, um, you know, we were in New York City, March 2020. So we were in the middle of it. So, you know, it uh, it was a, a kind of an incredibly hard experience. We have this wonderful human being. And, you know, I since I wasn't traveling, I got to spend basically every day of my child's life with him for that first year. Oh, he was born in March? He was born in August. Oh of 2020 so we were uh, we keep saying we as if i really had uh i had a role you did a limited role but you know joss was pregnant during the heart of it and so it's hard again it's hard to say anything positive about the pandemic but i did experience what i believe they call in other countries they refer to as paternity leave where i get to spend every day for that first year with my child and got to be part of you know that experience and I already knew that we should have paternity leave and maternity leave in this country, but that experience of spending all the time, the idea that I wouldn't have been able to, or a parent in general wouldn't have been able to because of work in this country is, it's even more upsetting now that I experience what it's like to actually have that. Oh, and not only is that marvelous for you and your family, but it also reveals 
your origins as a political activist. Uh, there are people who may not know that uh, you have a master's in human rights studies from the London School of Economics. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of money was spent, Lois, before I agreed to a career that was so unstable. Well, but it, it you know, that activism, being an immigrant rights organizer, it certainly informs your work. Yeah. In your stand-up, you never shy away from discussing race or stereotyping. I marvel at how you craft stories and arrive at punchlines that are hilarious but poignant and really hard-hitting at the same time. Is it as fluid a process as it seems in your work? Um, huh, is it as, that's a really good question. No, <laughs> it's you know you know that's not always true. Sometimes you get super lucky and you get lightning in a bottle, and you say something on stage and the words come out and they pour out and it's perfect and a few tweaks here and there. But you've somehow either improvised or come uh, have come up with something that doesn't need a lot of work. It's it is what it is and it's perfect and it's a little bit of genius that somehow came out of your mouth. Most times, it's a thought that leads to other thoughts, that leads to more writing, that leads to going on stage and repeatedly bombing until you figure out the right combination of ideas, the right combination of words, the right combination of sentences, until you have something that, that works on stage. So I've had some weird experiences in Portland. Last time I was there, I was hanging out with a friend. He introduced me to his friend. Introductions are always weird for me because my name is Hurry, and that's constantly mispronounced. Hurry, Harry, right? Different ways to screw it up, and it leads to these awkward conversations. So this guy asked me what my name was, and I told him my name is Hurry. Hurry? No, it's Hurry. Hurry? I'm like, look, I don't want to play this game right now, okay? Just uh, <laughs> make eye contact, say something close. I'll know you're talking to me. And, and he got really upset about this. No, I want to get your name right, okay? It's important that I get your name right. Because people get my name wrong all the time, and I'm sick of it. I'm like, all right, man, what's your name? My name is Dave. Wait, did you just say your name was Dave? No, not Dave. My name is Dave. And so I hugged him. Yeah, I did. Here, here was a man who could relate to my secret pain. And after our embrace, I asked him, friend, why did your parents name you Dave? And he said, well, they didn't. They named me Dave, but last year I legally changed it to Dave. It's, uh, it's, a, it's spelled D-E-Y-F. No. That is not my problem. That is a much different problem. That is a much larger problem. That is clearly a Portland, Oregon-based problem. Don't pretend! I, you know, I think there are 
comics who they just have that natural gift. Everything that comes out of their mouth sounds perfect, like it's a joke. And I have moments like that, but for the most part, you know, I pride myself on putting the work in and trying to find new and different ways to be funny, to come up with a new structure for a punchline, to try to keep the audience off guard. So I wish it was that fluid, but it's a lot of stop and start. And sometimes, you know, I go through, I don't throw anything away. I have every notebook pretty much that I've written in since I was 17 years old. And every now and then I'll go through old books from a decade ago and I find a thought that I wasn't ready to really delve into at that age. It was like a thought, but I didn't have enough life experience. And now I'll I'll dig into it now and I, I get somewhere that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So, I mean, that's the, the wonderful thing about comedy is that it looks really fluid, but it's actually like for most of us, like a really painstaking process and a great deal of thought. And at least for me, I never throw anything away. I feel like if I thought of something, there must have been some validity to it. If I if I felt so strongly at some point, let's dig in and see what, what else is there. That's fantastic. And how wise of you to keep those journals, to keep those thoughts. So look, it's part of your art making it sound fluid and simple, but yeah. of course it takes arduous planning and, and crafting of the stories. I gotta say, I want to thank you for turning one of my rants although you could not possibly have known. You've turned one of my rants into a fabulous stand-up routine. Why does white chocolate exist? <laughs> but you, Hurry, of course, turned it into something pointing out the inherent racism. I simply thought chocolate is perfect. You know, I, the racial part hadn't occurred to me, but is that my white privilege? It's also my constant search for a joke and seeing something also for the purpose of laughter. I think that's, I think most people don't function with the idea of let me have a conversation or a thought that I reshare over and over again. So I'm sure at some point a thought has slipped into your mind that could have been a really funny joke, but you let it go because you're a human being who <laughs> doesn't dwell on the same handful of thoughts until they're they're properly shared to a wide audience. You know, I love that that the joke you're referring to is is one of the first, like I I think it's probably still my my favorite joke, and it's hard to say because I've written so many and and I wrote that one so many years ago. But it's this idea that you know, why did we need to make, you know, white chocolate? Chocolate's perfect. It's fraudulent. It's fraud. It's not, it's, not, it's cocoa butter. It's not even really chocolate. It's, it's I know. cocoa butter extract, which I don't make as part of the joke, but it's another point to be, be made. But it's the idea of people thinking, you know, do you love the taste of chocolate, but can't stand looking at it? <laughs> well, then try some white chocolate. So let me talk about something perhaps we can all relate to. Chocolate. Yeah, yeah, we all know or like chocolate, yes? Chocolate. Chocolate is great. I love chocolate. Here's why I love chocolate so much. You see, in this country, a person is assumed to be white unless otherwise specified. That's why I like chocolate. 
Because when you first think of chocolate, you think of something brown. And if you think of white chocolate first, well, then you're a racist. Honestly. Come on. Who's thinking of chocolate in that situation exactly? And here's the bigger question. Why did we need white chocolate to begin with? All right, what was wrong with chocolate? It's chocolate, it's great. Why did we need to make white chocolate? Do you love the taste of chocolate, but can't stand looking at it? <laughs> we'll try some white chocolate, huh? And, and the punchline being from the people that brought you white Jesus, which has, has done well and, and has also not done well depending on who's in the room. I will share oh, that much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you, and I would think also the region. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's you'll be surprised that there are times where you go to a city and people love it, either because, you know, it's, it's a group of people who've been dying to hear the kinds of things I have to say. Or sometimes it, it's funny when you go to a town where you don't get that much live entertainment, even if the audience doesn't necessarily agree with you on a lot of things, they're just happy you're there. Like they will enjoy their night because somebody came here and is talking to us. <laughs> so, you know, I, I also realized that there's a power in being an entertainer just that I wouldn't have gotten if I was just a, a human being rambling about things. That's the antidote to your dad earlier on asking for a head count of how many people showed <laughs> up to hear you, isn't it? It's like, Dad, you don't understand. It's not about the number of people. It's the impact I'm making. And the quality of the laugh is what I say when I want to feel better about 20 people in a 300-seat auditorium, which luckily has not happened as much as it used to. Um, but No, I would think not. But I will say, you know, it has been interesting, you know, since it's hard to say the pandemic ended, but you know, since we've started performing again and, and resumed some of our, our previous life's activities, it is interesting to see how ticket sales work, at least for me now, because, you know, I, I historically, I've generally sold a lot of tickets ahead of time, people who are excited to see me finally come to their town or come back after a while. And, you know, it hasn't been that many pre-sales of late, which I, I find kind of strange. And I get worried, like, have I lost it? Have people lost interest? And then I get to the show and it's packed. And apparently people don't buy their tickets until the last minute now, because what if they get sick? You know, what if th something changes? What if I get sick? And it's kind of interesting to see that as well as, you know, if there is any type of audience that would either wear a mask or be extra cautious at a show. It would be my crowd, yes. which unfortunately for the comics who are anti-mask, anti-vaccine, their shows sell out immediately because nobody cares about anything. Like no one's worried about the consequences. So it's easy to buy that ticket. My fans being thoughtful, cautious human beings tends to work in my disadvantage in this particular scenario because it means that there's always a risk that you know people have to back out at the last second but you know there's worse problems in the world and i do i do not mind people wearing masks in the audience I, it just means that you want to have a good time and not feel guilty about it and you can still hear laughter through masks you can which worried me and 
would have worked as a wonderful excuse if shows didn't go well. But uh, <laughs> no, it, it you can, and you know, you lose a little bit of the smiling and all the little things. But I can still hear the laughter. I know people are happy, and if they're not leaving their seats, that's probably a good sign. I don't think you need to worry about that. I'm still back on white chocolate and it's fraudulent. <laughs> but part of what really landed as a shock for me is, I guess, because my love for chocolate goes back to infancy. I always associated the color of it with something so special and good. And it was shocking, eye-opening to think, whoa, are there people for whom the color brown immediately conjures a horrible reaction? Homeland Security would be one group of people, I think, that the color brown would probably bring up a negative reaction if history has shown us anything. I mean... What I love about that joke, I mean, part of it is really, I love the fact chocolate is brown and is the first thing people think of. When they think of chocolate, they think of something that is brown and is the positive thing. And in America, when you see, you know, the quote unquote average American being discussed, no one is thinking of me. No one is thinking of an Indian American. No one is thinking of a person of color. Most times they're thinking of, a, you know, a white person. And what does that white person think and a white person's experience? And the default American, despite the great diversity of this country, ends up being white. And that's why chocolate, in part, is something I love so much, because <laughs> you can't help but think of something positive and brown. You yeah, know what I mean? That is a wonderful thing. And cardiologists tell us now it's good for us. Oh, yes. Though, uh, isn't it dark chocolate they say is good for us? Yeah, but other than white, which, as we know, is fraudulent. I never met a chocolate I didn't like. <laughs> so there. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with comedian Hari Kondabolu. He'll perform at Dad's Garage this Wednesday evening. Hollywood. And the entertainment industry at large have a long, ugly history with stereotyping. It's been five years since you created the documentary, The Problem with Apu, about a character on the animated comedy show The Simpsons. For those who may never have seen it, Apu was an Indian-born man with a thick accent and negative stereotypic traits he was given in the show. Hurry, would you talk about the impact of this film over the past five years? Yeah, I absolutely can. It's funny, you know, I made this documentary. The issue of Apu being a stereotype, you know, that, that wasn't new to me. Growing up, it was quite obvious, like, oh, this... You know, this character is doing a crude impression of my parents, essentially. And, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't mind it because we didn't have anything else. And if you're hungry, you take crumbs. Right. So that's basically, you know, what it was. And when you start to realize, oh, this is all we have is this one character, you know, that definitely gets old after a while. You know, I did a piece on my old uh, friend W. Kamau Bell's show 
totally biased where I first kind of discussed the idea of Apu. And I remember when I was writing the piece, I wasn't sure if it was all that interesting just because I'm like, yeah, but people have talked about Apu kind of being built on stereotypes for years, right? And, and I remember Kamau telling me, no, your community has talked about that. That's not something mainstream America thinks about, and which was kind of eye-opening. And when that piece was made, which was it was just a short part of a longer piece about South Asian representation, that part is the part that popped that people brought up a lot. And so, and it became clear that there was more meat on the bone. So I made this documentary to talk about the history of this character and how, you know, it, it fits into this larger uh, history of minstrelsy against marginalized people in this country. You know, I'd start with like the black community, blackface, things like that. And it kind of falls in line, a weird hazing period that you know, marginalized people have to go through with their representation in this country before finally they get seen in some way, they get accepted into the mainstream. And so I make this documentary, you know, I, I make it as funny as I can. It's kind of a 101 for me, you know, like it, it wasn't nearly as like thoughtful or in depth as I'd like it to be. But, you know, it was on basic cable. And my thought was, this is something that people don't know about. So you got to kind of start from scratch. I didn't think it would make much of a dent considering it was a 45-minute documentary on True TV um, that was hard to access online at the time. It's now available on HBO Max if people do want to see it. But when it came out in 2017, it was hard to find. And the thing I realized is people don't need to see, read, or really consume a thing to be able to have an opinion on it and criticize it. And what that led to is just the trailer of the film led to people saying things like, why does everything have to be racist? We live in this politically correct society. Now Apu's racist. How come nobody said anything for 30 years? And it's like, well, nobody asked me because I was seven. You know what I mean? Like if we, if there wasn't the ability for us to speak in the public eye as, as, as South Asians for quite some time. And so I make this documentary. A lot of people see it. A lot of people don't. But it's written about in, you know, press all over the U.S. and all over the world because I discovered how far the the reach is. So you have people writing articles about this about this documentary in places where the film is not available. You know, throughout South America, for example, I got so many death threats in Spanish and eventually Portuguese when I got to Brazil. Oh, wait, I thought you were going to say they were cheering. No, 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 no. It was it was a lot of, I mean, I still get one or two hate mails a week, and it's been five years. The death threats have pretty much stopped, which is great. The first two years, you know, weren't the best, especially when the film originally came out. I had to have extra security at shows because people were sending messages to venues and things like that. So oh my. over a cartoon character. And, you know, I, I think to myself, who taught me how to critique popular culture? Where did I learn to do that? It was The Simpsons. Like I'm I used what I was taught. Like, how can you be funny and critical of popular culture? And, th and that's the first place I really saw it, you know, that in Saturday Night Live. And, you know, it was just funny to see how furious people got the fact that the Simpsons responded in any way and in a way that was kind of childish, to be perfectly honest. It's funny for for a documentary that was made on basic cable that most people didn't watch for that to elicit a reaction from the Simpsons 
tells you a lot about white fragility. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I, I just, let's say I was being a troll, which if I was a troll, I didn't need to make a whole documentary to do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just tweeted a few things. But the thing you should never do is feed a troll. So the fact that they responded to me in any official sense or on the show, which they did through Lisa Simpson, critiquing the nature of, you know, trying to revise history or what do you do with art that's problematic? Like she had a response that kind of threw the nature of that character under the bus. Well, what am I supposed to do? It's hard to say. Something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect. What can you do? Some things will be dealt with at a later date. If at all. The fact that I was able to strike a nerve says a lot about white fragility. Like, wow, you were criticized for the first time ever, really. The show has never really been criticized other than you're not as funny as you used to be, which is not the worst criticism. That's They set a standard that was so high, it's hard for them to top themselves. That's a good problem, though it has been quite some time that it's been on. But that being said, like the fact that it reached them that says a lot. You're supposed to be counterculture. You're supposed to be edgy and daring. The fact that that could bother you as opposed to be a challenge to like, ah, you know, this character is old. It is a bit stereotypical. We've done a lot to improve the character, but it still has issues. Let's see what else we can do to make it interesting, to kind of update it for where we're at today. Like that thought wasn't there. And that's fine. They can do whatever they want with, with a character. At the end of the day, I don't really care about the character. It's about the message of, hey, when all this was being said and all this was being done, we were paying attention, but you didn't care about us because we did not exist to you. We were not a group that whose voice you worried about and thought about, and you had your laughs, and now we're having our laughs at your expense. <laughs> Is that okay? And apparently it's not. I found it very disappointing when Matt Gronick, one of the creators, was so dismissive. I right. really was stunned that it could be just, oh, a comment about political correctness. Did Hank Azaria ever apologize to you? Yes. Yes, he did. You know, I've never actually shared that on air, but yeah, he did. Yeah, he shared it with others. I had hoped he might have contacted you directly. He did. He did. You know, he definitely spoke about it on various podcasts on Colbert, his regret about the impact the character had. And I appreciated that. And then we actually met up for breakfast maybe a year ago, which I've never actually discussed. But he was very like, you know, like, I feel terrible. I had no idea about the impact I was making. That obviously wasn't my intention. I'm so sorry if it had in negative impacts on your life or any of your friends, which, you know, was more than really needed to be said. I didn't really need an apology. You know, to me, it's, you know, I made a film that discussed a thing and he's a, you know, I get it. He's a, a character actor. He did a voice and kind of got stuck in it after a while. Like, I, I understand. I also understand and appreciate the fact that he's taken accountability because, of course, you have some accountability. I think the thing that, I, you know, I think bothered me maybe a little bit about the apologies and all the, the things he said after actually critically thinking about um, that character and his role in it was he never mentioned how and why he questioned it. 
Like, it's as if he just came up with these thoughts as opposed to like, you don't think my work has impacted the way you think? You don't think that's the reason you're thinking about this? You didn't just come to the conclusion that this was a bad idea. Like, somebody had to bring it to you. And, you know, I feel like that's something that happens to a lot of people of color. There's an erasure of their contributions to popular culture, to thought. And it's frustrating because I'm really happy. And, you know, initially was like, this is great. Like, this is what a conversation should do. It should lead to people actually like learning things and pushing us forward. And, you know, it seems like a lot of people didn't watch the documentary and, and didn't get impacted. They just reacted negatively. And one of the guys I talk about actually watched it and reacted in this way that's thoughtful. And I appreciated that. And I remember my friend W. Kamau Bell said to me like, okay, but that's all well and good, but you did work and you got death threats and you took the heat. And for someone not to acknowledge that this happened because you put the work in, like people are willing to hate you for it and people are willing to threaten you for it. Those people give you credit, but the people who like it's positively affected or who, you know, made major changes in their life, like Hank Azari, you would think, you know, I would do, I was do at least a tip of the cap because I also think that would have meant a lot considering all these people are threatening me. If the guy that did the voice said I was right, that he's reconsidered, that probably would have been helpful to me. And so, you know, it's a strange thing because part of me doesn't want, it's like, I don't need credit. Part of me wants this. I don't want to say wants it to go away, but, you know, after a while, like who wants to keep being insulted over something you did five years ago that you actually stand behind, you know, but I suppose if you make good art and it makes a ripple and it lasts five years, it's probably good art. Comedian Hari Kondabolu. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Let's get back to my conversation with comedian Hari Kondobolu. Here, we discuss his multiple podcasts. You mentioned your friend Kamau Bell a couple times. You have a podcast together with him. You also have a podcast with your brother. Yeah, 
Yeah. The Kondabolu brothers and politically reactive with Kamau Bell. Why did you want to bring that back in 2020 after a three-year hiatus? I mean, we brought it back around the time of the, the election. You know, the, the original idea of the podcast was a one-year election covering what we thought was going to be, you know, the Hillary Clinton election. Like, you know, it was a historic time. It was a very big transitional time. We wanted to cover stories. And to us, it was like, okay, we let's see how much further we can, you know, shape this progressive movement. What is happening? We've made some incremental progress under Obama. What else we can do? And it seems foolish now. You know, I don't think a lot of us realized what we were actually up against. So we ended up extending it another year to cover the first year of the Trump presidency. And then we brought it back because, hey, like this is going to be a historic, you know, election. Is Trump going to get reelected? And we brought it back and it happened to coincide with the pandemic where both of us actually had a block of time, which is something that, you know, I've realized is hard to guarantee. Like, I would love to bring this podcast back again for this upcoming election. But, you know, Kamau has three kids and is making so many different incredible things, including his amazing documentaries, four-part documentary on Bill Cosby, which is available on Showtime, which uh, there was a lot of great documentaries that he was up against for the Emmys. I really thought he was going to win it because the work he does on that four-part documentary is just incredible, really thoughtful. And also, you know, selfishly, I would love to have our podcast back because I miss talking to my friend every week. <laughs> you know, it's hard. Your lives, you know, it's not like a decade ago plus before we had kids, you know, now, you know, <laughs> things are busier and and harder and success is wonderful. It also brings less time to talk to the people that you love all the time. And so that was an excuse for us to hang out virtually every week. And I miss that terribly. In addition to having really good conversations and talking to incredible guests, not just about uh, the issues that were in front of us, but kind of like, what are the long-term impacts of things? Or let's talk about gerrymandering, things that would seem very boring. How do we make those topics interesting? And to know that, you know, our podcast has been used in college classrooms, for example, to explain concepts is incredible because that's not why you get into entertainment. You don't expect to be studied. And I feel privileged that that and the documentary and my standup has been on curriculums. You know, that's not how I imagined it going down, but I'm grateful. With good reason. In the final episode of Politically Reactive, you and Kamau, listen to me, I'm talking about like he's my friend. <laughs> you and Kamau Bell discuss mistakes you made in this series. And that's so admirable. Why did you both think it important to finish out the podcast with a my bad episode? Because I think it's important to be accountable, you know, especially when you, you know, are in the, the public sphere and you are trying to share people's truths and be honest and if you make a mistake, like, it, do do you do you just avoid it and pretend it never happened, or do you own up to it and see if there's growth there? I feel like the PR thing to do in a lot of these situations, and by PR I don't mean politically reactive, but public relations is 
you know, uh, avoid it. Don't say anything. It's very Trumpian, right? If you don't say anything, it moves on. Nobody thinks about it. And I, I don't think that's really our style. It's it's more about like, let's be honest and confront it, apologize where there needs to be apologies and and move forward. I mean, I think that, you know, that's that's something both of us hang our hats on is being really thoughtful with our art, thinking about the impact it's going to make and hoping that it makes the world better. And if we in any way fail to do that, especially in something like a podcast, because with stand up, that's it's a different kind of thing. It's hard always to fix mistakes. You do the best you can or something is cemented and you can't go back and fix it because it's a stand. It's a joke and it's out there with a podcast, the ability to make an episode to actually fix things. That's a, you know, that's a gift. And also, you know, you, I can't hide behind this idea of this is, it's a work of art. It's frozen in time. A podcast is much more of a living thing. And it's a great opportunity to actually like, you know, practice what you preach. So that's why we did that last episode. Hmm. You and comedian Megan Stalter are hosts of the new Netflix show, Snack versus Chef, a food competition show where 12 chefs go head-to-head to recreate some of the world's iconic snacks and invent their own snacks. Hurry, what was your reaction when they asked you to host the show? In all honesty, who canceled on you? <laughs> who said they couldn't do it last minute? Aww. Just because, you know, I am so used to the offers being made to me being very much about politics and race and, it, you know, which is nice, but it gets frustrating because I'm also a good comedian. Like I'm a, a strong writer. I've done this for 20 plus years. Like I know how to do comedy. I know how to be on camera. I know how to read a teleprompter well. Like these are things I've had to develop over the years. And it's like, you know, I have skills that can be used really in any setting, but I don't think people necessarily have always thought of me as as a person who can do those things because my material is what it is. It, it has a really strong point of view. I think people sometimes forget it has a strong point of view, but there's also lots of skill involved in structure and writing and thought that that works in other spheres. So when I got this offer, I'm like, wow, this is this is just a fun show. There is no greater meaning here. It's it's just a fun show to have. It's just to have fun. And, you know, I was thrilled. And I think in my 20s, maybe I would have scoffed at it. Like, no, that's not what that Lenny Bruce wouldn't do this. You know what I mean? This is <laughs> this is not what George Carlin would have done once he became a politicized being. And it's like, what, you, what am I talking about? Oh, he would have done it when he got the munchies. Yeah, right. <laughs> I take it back, Lois. You're absolutely right. Didn't think about it, but you're absolutely right. Oh. Well, you know, I, I don't sell yourself short. You probably would have seen the redeeming social value of maybe saying that potato chips are the perfect combination of fat, starch, and salt. Oh, there's definitely a lot of discussion of that. I mean, that's that's one thing that's really fun about this is you can only take yourself so seriously when it's talking about snack food, right? 
because that is something that's relatable to everybody. Everybody has their things they enjoy. And it's kind of universal, regardless of whether you're a kid or an adult. There's a mix of nostalgia and, oh, my God, I love these things. And it, it really, you know, we made a really fun show. Meg Stalter is an incredible force of nature. If you've seen her mm-hmm. on uh, the show Hacks on HBO Max, yes. which is she's the the assistant, the agent's assistant. Incredible. And, you know, getting to work with her was so fun because we're so different yet there was such a nice chemistry. And, you know, I don't think I was exactly the straight man, but I do think more so because, you know, I feel like I'm I'm good with structure and I'm good with jokes. But, you you know, I also know that Meg is someone who needs to be given a bit of free reign because what she can do with space is unbelievable. With the room to just invent, like she's such an incredible performer and we had a blast co-hosting this. You know, and we had two incredible uh, judges and Helen Park and Ali Buzari, who are chefs, who were able to actually, you know, break down the science of the stuff we were eating and also how the industry, the snack industry works. So, you know, it's a fun show. You know, it's a family show. It's definitely something I would love to do again. Comes out on Netflix on November 30th. I hope people watch it. It's it's I don't think you're going to leave it being a different human being. But I do think you'll leave it in a good mood. And hungry. And, this, and hungry. Yes. Absolutely. Do you think that the brownie is the perfect food? Oh. I do. I like brownies. They've never been my number one. I'd always, you know, a cookie or a piece of cake has always been my preference. So mm. a brownie, especially a blondie, which I realize might be sacrilegious and maybe hypocritical <laughs> considering my discussion of white chocolate earlier. But a blondie is an incredible invention. I I absolutely love it. Comedian and podcaster, Hurry Condobolo. Here, he talks about his time at the Diwali celebration at the White House. I mean, first of all, it was 500 people. It was packed in there and it was, it felt... uh, it, it's it's strange when you're part of a community that is relatively small, like 1% of the population, something like that. Because when things like this happen and you get chosen to go, you basically see every South Asian who's on the top of their field. And the ones who couldn't make it only didn't make it because they had something else going on or they're so famous where, oh, another trip to the White House? You know what I mean? <laughs> Was the vice president there? <laughs> yes, Kamala Harris was there, as was Dr. Jill Biden and and president. All gave lovely speeches. And, you know, after the speeches, you know, there was also like, it was kind of beautiful seeing a sitar player play in the East Room and see dancing, like, you know, different, like, South Asian styles of dancing, you know, in the East Room. And, you know, I thought there would be more like formal events. But after that, you know, that initial presentation, it was like, hey, here's some booze and food. Enjoy yourself. Like it was <laughs> such a it was literally a party. Like I am having a mango lychee cocktail while staring at a portrait of John F. Kennedy. Oh. Like it is the most bizarre and wonderful thing. And, you know, my mom doesn't walk as well, perhaps as she used to. And I, you know, I was kind of, I felt bad, like, mom, you didn't get to walk around as much as I hoped. And she's like, just being there was almost enough. Just interacting with the people I interacted with, just seeing what I was seeing in front of me is, was unbelievable because 
you're seeing the White House filled with 500 plus South Asians, you know, dancing and talking and a lot of us meeting each other for the first time. People, you know, oh, I've heard of you, but we've never met. Like, how many spaces will you find so many incredible writers and actors and business people? You know, Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General was there. It's it's surreal. Like, wow, like all of us are in this room and we all do very different things. But, you know, we're all South Asian and and we all have, I suppose, succeeded enough where we're people of note in our community. And it was beautiful. It it really was. It was a thrill. And and to bring my mom there was uh I, I don't even say it was a dream because a dream means I've thought that that was a possibility. Do you know what I mean? Like I never thought this like was a thing that telling jokes in a basement of a sports bar when I was 23 would bring me. Do you know what I mean? Like that my thought when I was struggling at open mics and performing in front of eight people wasn't this will bring me to the white house one day and i can bring my mom with me and it, it just to be there was surreal all a lot of this is surreal for me whenever i get invited to something like that i'm like wow i get seen in that light by my peers that is that is beautiful oh and how special for her magical yeah. i'm sure unforgettable oh yeah and i think and she was thrilled to to have pictures. I wish she had gotten a picture with the president. We weren't able to do that, but she got a ton of beautiful shots in the White House and a lot of stories. So that's it's just wonderful. It's great. And you did it. I feel pretty good about it. It, it I, I don't I don't think it makes up for maybe how hard I made life to some degree choosing an unconventional career. I feel like the baby makes up for that more than anything. Aww. I think uh, giving them a grandchild, I think, kind of fixed a lot of that. But I, I don't think it hurts to to bring your mom to the White House. And it's funny, there were a lot of other people that brought their mom too. And I was thinking, are they all kind of in the same thing of like, all right, see, it all paid off. <laughs> <laughs> me, me being an actor paid off. Me being an activist paid off. Here's the proof. Here's the White House. Yeah. I love it. Many of our listeners know you from your work on the NPR News Quiz Show. Wait, wait, don't tell me. What's special for you about being a panelist on Wait, Wait? Oh, the chemistry with the other panelists, you know, it's not always the same lineup, but sometimes you get lucky and you you find a group of people that just really gel well. I had a great time the last show I did this last week. I was with, uh, it was me, Maz Jabrani and Karen Chi. We were three comics were the panelists and we had a blast. Like, you know, you, you never know how it's going to go. At the time before it was me, Dulce Sloan, Tom Papa, also a, an absolute blast. You know, that's great. Peter Sagal is just brilliant. Like he is such a good host and I learn watching him every week. He's so quick. It, it really is a, a team show. <laughs> All right, Alex, for your next quote, here is one of many enthusiastic reactions to an election that happened this week in Europe. This will end in catastrophe. Yes, that was a foreign minister in Spain talking about the election of the fascist leader, Georgia Maloney, as prime minister of what country? Italy. Yes, that's right, Italy. Ding. It's a me, a fascism, Georgia Maloney. <laughs> <laughs> the leader of a hard-right party that is a literal descendant of the original fascist party was elected the new prime minister of Italy. But come on, has, an, a, has a fascist Italian prime minister ever done anything bad? No, they've only ever 
never been helpful. Look exactly. at history. Exactly. <laughs> she prefers to go by Mussolini. <laughs> Listen, this, y'all been asking for equality. There you go. This is what it looks like. It's weird because like a lot of their, their stance, that political party stance, is the idea of like refugees are coming to Italy. Right. And they're, you know, one thing I read was that refugees are the reason for the crime and prostitution problem in Italy. And I don't know if you can, I've seen a few films, and I'm not sure if they can really claim that, unless they're claiming that what they don't like about this crime is that it's unorganized. Yeah, you know, I was about to say, <laughs> crime in Italy? Like, no, one, really... no one associates criminals with Italians. What are you talking about? Like, there just isn't a hierarchical structure to this crime. No, I know, I know. You know, it, there's not much preparation. You hope that you follow the news enough to be able to come up with stuff. But really, it's about being funny on the top of your head. And, you know, the thing that's probably my favorite thing is the is the actual live show, because what people get at home obviously is somewhat censored and we have to take certain things out. But if you do go to a live taping, which I strongly suggest you do at some point, there are so many things that are incredibly funny that we cannot put on public radio. And it is a delight. I think the crowd is always surprised because I'm like, oh my God, like that is not going to make the edit. And we will tell the audience that was for you. That will not make the edit. But really, like, we have so much fun. It is a blast every time. And, you know, they have this incredible new theater that they're doing the show out of called the Studebaker, which, oh, it's like taping a, a stand up special every show. So much great energy wonderful crowd. It's a privilege to be on that stage. So uh, I feel really fortunate that I'm a regular panelist now. Comedian, podcaster, and wait, wait, don't tell me, panelist, hurry, Condobolo. That conversation was recorded when hurry was in Atlanta performing at Dad's Garage in November. More information about Hurry Condobolu is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Today was our last show of 2022, and we thank you for spending the year with us. It has been a joy and a privilege to bring you high-profile conversations with John Waters, Smokey Robinson, Coleman Domingo, Danielle Deadweiler, Peter Sagal, and Michael Schur, among others, as well as the features we shared about the robust art scene in Atlanta, like the hip-hop architecture exhibition at Moda, Noguchi's Playscapes at Piedmont Park, and the Day of the Dead at Oakland Cemetery. Team City Lights is proud to be WABE's source for arts and culture news, and we thank you for supporting us in our work. I look forward to spending more time with you in 2023. And for now, we'll leave you with a song for the new year, from Otis Redding and Carla Thomas. Off the 1967 album King and Queen, this is New Year's Resolution. Just you and me
You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow and Monday, we bring you public radio specials for the new year. And we'll be back Tuesday at 11 a.m. with curator Michael Brooks. He joins us to discuss the new exhibition, Munir Farman Farmia, a mirror garden, on view at the High Museum through April 9. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Here's wishing you a safe and happy holiday weekend and a joyous new year. Thanks for listening to WABE. Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.